Fullerton. We are Radio Catskill. Of course, by now it's obvious that new laws are not enough. The emergency we now face is economic, and it is a desperate and worsening situation. That's Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Today is his actual birthday, and I hope you've been having a good MLK Day. Welcome to the local edition from Radio Catskill. I'm Jason Dole, and we are going to hear more from Dr. King coming up in the second half of this program. We'll also be celebrating the anniversary of another birthday. Legendary jazz drummer and civil rights activist Max Roach was born 100 years ago last week. Radio Catskill's Thane Peterson recently spoke with Roach's son, Raul Roach. We'll have that interview coming up, too. But first, Dr. Nzinga Harrison is a board-certified physician specializing in psychiatry and addiction medicine who challenges common misconceptions surrounding addiction. She presents it as a chronic illness that deserves empathy and comprehensive care. In her latest book on addiction, Six Mind-Changing Conversations That Could Save a Life. Radio Catskills, Patricio Robayo spoke to Dr. Harrison about her new book. She starts off talking about what inspired her to delve into the topic of addiction. I actually decided really young to be a doctor. And at that point, I thought I'd be a, a pediatrician because that was the only doctor that I knew. I had a fantastic surgeon in seventh grade, decided to be a surgeon. And so I went to medical school and did my psychiatry rotation and was just flabbergasted by how terrible people with addiction and other mental health conditions were treated, not just by the healthcare system, but also just in everyday life. And um, so professionally developed my passion. And now that I'm a psychiatrist, we look back in your childhood um, and I have addiction and mental health conditions on both sides of my family, mother and father. And I think I was probably destined to be an addictions doctor and dedicate my life to changing the way that we treat people that have addiction. Absolutely. In your perspective, why is it crucial to emphasize that addiction is treatable and chronic and not a choice or moral failure? Yeah. So drug use is a choice. And in fact, almost everybody chooses to use drugs, right? Look at the Starbucks line, look at the Dunkin' Donuts line, um, look at vaping and, and smoking. Addiction is an illness. Um, and that means it has biological reasons it develops. It has psychological reasons. You touched on one like childhood trauma. It has environmental reasons physically and culturally. And so if we don't understand it as an, as an illness, we condemn people, which makes us stay silent, which means people don't ask for help, which means people die, which means medicine doesn't advance and learning about how to treat this illness. And so once we understand it as an illness, we can look at those biological, psychological, and environmental factors. We can make a plan. We can help people get better and we can help people speak up um, because we're not judging them. Where I'm now here in, in Liberty, New York, we're Sullivan County. We have the highest overdose rates from opioids outside of oh New York my gosh. In, in New York State. Wow. Um, and it's we have a crisis happening here. I'm always as a reporter, as as also as a citizen, I'm just wondering how are officials approaching this? And mm -hmm. they are approaching from both ends, but it seems like more more sometimes, more times than not, is it's facing it with law enforcement. Um, yeah. We, we have here, I have to give credit to Southern County, we have here a thing called Hope Net Handcuffs. People who are in throes of addiction when they are, are arrived by police, they have someone come there to the scene and, and help them get treatment. And that, uh, and oh, I love that. 
Yeah, so th- that's a great program that we have here, but it, it's a really hard dilemma how to deal with it, with addiction when it when it has uh, of there. But I, I meaning the reason I said that is because if you're turning it to something that's treatable, no one's getting arrested because they're diabetic. No one's getting arrested because they're asthma. No. Say it again louder for the people in the back, right? Nobody's getting arrested because they have cancer. And so you can safely speak up about those conditions and get help. People with opioid use disorder, you're afraid your family might turn their back on you. You lose their job. You get arrested. You go to jail. Somebody posts about you on social media and your life is ruined, right? And so the more we can understand it as an illness, that develops our desire to want to help. You're not mean to sick people. You're not helpful and compassionate to people who are struggling with an illness. And so this is why it's critical. Dr. Harrison, how have your experiences in in healthcare influenced your advocacy for first language, first people language and and changing the narrative around addiction? There's a statistic, 46% of us know someone, have someone in our life who is living with or, or struggling with addiction. That's everybody, right? That's one and two. So that is everybody. And so when we use language that unintentionally drives stigma, like addicts, there's so much wrapped up in addicts. And one is that person is not the illness. That is a person with an illness. That is a person with addiction. And so I can hate addiction and not hate that person. Same thing, like you're dirty. Your drug screen is dirty. Okay, so when I have active addiction, I'm dirty and I'm only clean if I'm in recovery. These are the type of language um, that we use that drive stigma, even when we don't mean to, that make it hard for one, people to get help and two, for us to be talking about prevention. Yeah, absolutely. Can you share a sort of a personal anecdote or experience that sort of shows your belief in the power of compassionate language and understanding when discussing addiction? Totally. So I'll actually, this just happened. What is today? Thursday? Um, Thursday. Thursday. So this just happened on Tuesday. The book came out on Tuesday and I was in the airport flying. I've co-founded this company called Eleanor Health. We take care of people with addiction in several states. And so I was doing a quick Instagram video like, oh, the book came out today. And a man in the airport came up to me and he's like, I noticed the name of the book that you're holding. And I'm like, yes, my book, it came out today. I was all proud. He had just flown into the airport to come help his brother get into treatment from addiction. And he said, I never go up to strangers, but like the cover of the book caught me. And so one, I said, I'm so sorry that your brother is struggling. Two, I'm so grateful that you're here to help him. Three, 75% of people recover from this illness. And I gave him a copy of the book and I gave him my phone number so he can text me to tell me how his brother is doing. That act of compassion, he's like, I bought a copy for your for my brother. I bought a copy for my wife's brother. I called my brother and told him I love him. Compassion is infectious. And when you're sick, compassion heals. And in your book, you have also real stories, Mm -hmm. right? And so how do you anticipate the real stories in your book resonating with readers and contributing to changing the perceptions? Yeah, what I hope is that everybody will see themselves in this book. Everybody will see somebody they love in this book. So I tell my own personal stories in this book. I have over 20 years of professional experience. I'm telling the stories of people that I've taken care of. And really the point is like from mild addiction to severe addiction, recovery is possible. The majority of people recover. So it's about hope and it's about being able to see yourself in a book about addiction that 
then decreases the stigma because it's not everybody else. It's not those people. It's me and it's my people. That makes us want to help. Your book underscores the importance of having an open mind. We've been dealing with addiction for a very long time here in this country. So how can readers navigate the journey of questioning and reevaluating their existing beliefs and, and, and assumptions about, addic- about addiction? Yeah, it starts starts with reading this book. We literally have scripts in there, a conversation with yourself. How do you evaluate your own risk? How do you look at your biological risk, your psychological risk, your environmental risk in childhood and today? How do you have the conversation with your kids? There are scripts for toddler, elementary, middle, high school, adult. How do you have a conversation with a friend? How do you talk to your doctor about your risk, right? And so this book is in six sections. It teaches you what that risk is. It gives you real life examples. It gives you homework to apply to yourself. And it gives you a script to take that conversation to someone else. And I hope that's how it becomes viral. Yeah. How do you recommend folks read your book when you first get it? All the way through the first time or pick sections out? Or how do you envision people reading the book? I wrote it for both scenarios. So I wrote it for people who want to read straight through. It's like funny and hopeful and serious and education-y. But I also wrote it, you can look at a chapter and say, I'm struggling with this. And you can go to that chapter and you can read that chapter and immediately get something that will help you. In whatever way works for the reader, this book will give them helpful information. And so you mentioned before you incorporate uh, exercises at the end of each chapter. Yeah. Can you share sort of an example of one of the exercises and, and its intended impact might have on a reader? Yeah. One is called The Cage. And this is a four-item questionnaire that helps you evaluate your current use. And it's four questions. And if you answer yes to one question, at a minimum, you are at risk for developing addiction you may already have a mild, moderate, or severe addiction. And so the C is, have you ever thought about cutting back? The A is, have you ever been annoyed when somebody else mentioned to you that they were worried? G, have you ever felt guilty because you said, I'm only going to drink one, and then you drank more than one? And E, eye opener, when you open your eyes in the morning, are you thinking about fill-in-the-blank substance? And so one of the exercises in the book is, Do this cage on yourself for whatever substance. And if you have a score of one, let's talk about how you have the conversation with yourself and then let's give you guidance for how you ask for help. Absolutely. For those who are interested in your book or looking for more information, where can they go? It's everywhere. So online, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, indie bookstores, actually in stores as well. If it's not in your neighborhood store, please hit me on social at Nzinga, MD. That's my first name, N-Z-I-N-G-A. And then MD, like medical doctor, the goal is for it to be in every store everywhere so that everyone's having these conversations. Dr. Harrison, before we go, is there anything else I have not mentioned that uh, you want folks to know about um, this book and, and your, your journey? This book is for everyone. So this book is for you if you're struggling with addiction. This book is for you if you think maybe I'm worried. This book is for you if you have a loved one. This book is for you if you are a doctor or therapist or health professional. This book is for you. Dr. Nzinga Harrison, her book is On Addiction, Six Mind-Changing Conversations That Could Save a Life. Thank you so much for joining us on the program, Dr. Harrison. Thank you so much. Appreciate you. Thank you, Patricio. This is the local edition. 
Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was born 95 years ago today and still to come on this MLK Day local edition. We have an excerpt from one of Dr. King's speeches. But right now we are going to mark another birthday. Legendary jazz drummer and civil rights activist Max Roach was born 100 years ago last week. Folks around the country are going to be celebrating this milestone all year this year. In Radio Catskills, Thane Peterson recently spoke with Raul Roach, Max Roach's son. Raul Roach is a veteran record industry executive. He's currently semi-retired and working with family and other collaborators of his late father to coordinate hashtag Max Roach 100, 18 months of events and celebrations surrounding Max Roach's centenary. Thane Peterson spoke with Raul Roach on the radio Catskill program Living Jazz. Here's some of that conversation. Why is everybody still concerned about Max Roach? I mean, we jazz fans know, but... Uh... Just explain a little to the people who aren't big jazz fans. Well, I think um, he comes from a generation of artists uh, in the 20th century um, that really invented themselves from nothing uh, without any kind of institutional support, without any kind of infrastructure and community. Uh, He and many other artists like him just followed their muse and their talent and their brilliance and determined that they were going to put it out there. So they worked themselves constantly to do great work and put their energy into making a difference in the world. I think uh, people like my father and and Harry, who I was fortunate enough to know, uh, Belafonte, uh, are the people who decided, yeah, we can be artists, we'll do our art. But we want to say something and do things with our platforms that we earned to give back and to make change in the human condition in the world. And so for me and for many others, that is why we should care and why it's significant. And then beyond that, on the artistic side, you know, uh, beyond jazz fans, he really, to a lot of scholars that want to write about him and are writing about him now, uh, changed the sound of music on the planet uh, from the perspective of percussion. And that was so interesting because it was all about breaking barriers, whether that be social, political, economic, but also artistic barriers. And for a lot of the ensembles that came to fore in the 20th century, the percussionists were only seen as timekeepers. And really, in a very European way, the front line that drove the melody were the real musicians, the, the stars of, of the show. And certainly from a musical perspective, there have been brilliant soloists in every art form. But in jazz that my dad and Kenny Clark and Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Parker and Miles and that whole crew, Charles Mingus, uh, brought to four was a democratic art form, as my, my father liked to call it, where everybody's voice was listened to and everybody had something to say. And they were on par with each other and there was no front line and back line. There was no front of the bus and <laughs> the back of the <laughs> bus to, to make an analogy. Uh, these were equal artists making important musical statements in cooperation with each other. And so 
that's why I think my father called it the greatest democratic art form. Uh, the, the music that comes out of the African-American instrumental tradition <clears throat> in the United States during the 20th century. Yeah, I think it's arguably the greatest uh, cultural gift the United States has given the world, although hip-hop is now becoming tremendously important. But there are jazz scenes in every tiny little country in the world. Uh, yes, I mean, it was... I, my background was in the industry. I, I, you know, of course, I got. Um, I started working with my dad when I was fifteen. When you were around my dad, you had to work. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, I learned. I learned a lot about the business itself, and in my own studies, it was uh, interesting for me to find out that the only music played in all 187 international territories around the world was jazz. And that shocked me because I thought that maybe classical would at least or opera would at least. But no, jazz was the only one that played in every country, in every territory. I guess they're what, from a economic corporate standpoint, they split the world into 187 territories. And so in all of those territories, there was a market for jazz music. Mm-hmm. And uh, I found that remarkable. And that was only equaled by, like you just mentioned, hip hop. Mm-hmm. Um, which is also uh, a uh, African American art form that was born 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 out of uh, struggle and lack, um, just like uh, what the um, people in the jazz world and especially in bebop, uh, in response to the um, swing era that really became corporatized and very exclusive, especially during the war with the with the uh, cabaret tax, they had to invent something new to survive. Well, the same thing happened with hip hop in uh, Queensbridge and the South Bronx. Um, these kids got together and were denied instruments and art programs at school. And so they, as human beings, needed to create. And they found a way. And they found a way through what was around them records and uh, stereo equipment. Because they weren't being given instruments and they weren't being given lessons. And after the post civil rights movement, a lot of young people were disillusioned with the church, which has been traditionally a place of African American musical incubation. But that changed. But I think uh, even in the hip hop world, which my father embraced very early in the nineties, uh, in, in the nineties, early no, 90s. in the early eighties, early eighties. I didn't yeah. even know hip hop well, existed concert, in the early eighties. <laughs> His first concert, uh, Bebop Meets Hip Hop, which was highly criticized by a lot of um, critics and, and, and even some musicians in the jazz world, given his stature, embracing this, you know, this low life music. But he did with The Kitchen. He was always experimenting. And with The Kitchen in New York City and his godson, Fred Brathwaite, uh, the son of his, one of his childhood friends and one of his closest friends in, from Bed-Stuy, his son, Fab Five Freddy, which oh. he became known in the hip-hop world, they put together at the kitchen this concert in uh, 1983. Wow. Now, my dad works on things for a long time, so he started it with, uh, they would have uh, rehearsals once a week, Fab was telling me recently. Uh, so they started in 1982 and then performed it at the kitchen two performances in 1983, which is available on YouTube. 
And we're recreating that as a part of uh, Max Roach 100, this, this year-long celebration uh, of events um, that uh, showcase the diverse uh, musical invention and experimentation that he was involved in. So in the fall of this year at the kitchen, right now it appears as also the Kennedy Center uh, with their hip hop program are going to present Bebop Beats Hip Hop as a tribute to that with uh, other artists who have been influenced both by jazz and by hip hop. Thank you, Thane, for that interview. Thane Peterson speaking with Raul Roach, who's coordinating 18 months of celebrations and events marking 100 years since his father, Max Roach, was born. Hashtag Max Roach 100. And remember, you can hear Thane Peterson's living jazz right here on Radio Catskill every Saturday afternoon at noon. Finally, on the local edition tonight, it would not be MLK Day without hearing from Dr. King himself. And that's what we're going to do now. In uh, 1967, Dr. King recorded a series of lectures for the CBC's Massey Lecture Series. He called Conscience of Change. And in this speech, he's talking about the urgency of protest, the importance of nonviolence, and the many layers of nuance that lie between the two. Here is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Massey Lecture number 4. Over the past 10 years, Dr. King, a Nobel Peace Prize winner, has been increasingly concerned with developing non-violent mass tactics for bringing about revolutionary social change. The riots and other events of this past violent year in the United States and around the world have challenged Dr. King's approach more harshly than ever before. Part of Dr. King's recent response has been to plan an unprecedented camp-in in Washington for the spring of 1968. And beyond that, to be more urgently concerned with thinking out non-violent strategies for facing international social problems. In tonight's talk, recorded two days ago in New York, Dr. King places in this current practical context his theoretical reflections on non-violence and social change. There is nothing wrong with a traffic law which says you have to stop for a red light. But when a fire is raging, the fire truck goes right through that red light, and normal traffic had better get out of its way. Or when a man is bleeding to death, the ambulance goes through those red lights at top speed. That is a fire raging now for the Negroes and the poor of this society. They are living in tragic conditions because of the terrible economic injustices that keep them locked in as an underclass, as the sociologists are now calling it. Disinherited people all over the world are bleeding to death from deep social and economic wounds. They need brigades of ambulance drivers who will have to ignore the red lights of the present system until the emergency is solved. Massive civil disobedience is a strategy for social change which is at least as forceful as an ambulance with its siren on full. In the past ten years, nonviolent civil disobedience has made a great deal of history, especially in the southern United States. When we in the Southern Christian Leadership Conference went to Birmingham, Alabama in 1963, 
We have decided to take action on the matter of integrated public accommodations. We went knowing that the Civil Rights Commission had written powerful documents calling for change, calling for the very rights we were demanding. But nobody did anything about the Commission's report. Nothing was done until we acted on these very issues and demonstrated before the court of world opinion the urgent need for change. It was the same story with voting rights. We created a crisis a nation couldn't ignore. Without violence, we totally disrupted the system, the lifestyle of Birmingham and then of Selma, with their unjust and unconstitutional laws. Of course, by now it's obvious that new laws are not enough. The emergency we now face is economic, and it is a desperate and worsening situation for the 35 million poor people in America, not even to mention just yet the poor in the other nations, that is a kind of strangulation in the air. In our society, it's murder psychologically to deprive a man of a job or an income. You are in substance saying to that man that he has no right to exist. You are in a real way depriving him of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness denying, in his case, the very creed of his society. Now millions of people are being strangled that way. The problem is at least national. In fact, it's international in scope. And it is getting worse, as the gap between the poor and the affluent society increases. The question that now divides the people who want radically to change that situation is, can the program of nonviolence realistically expect to meet such an enormous entrenched evil? Many people feel that nonviolence as a strategy for social change was cremated in the flames of the urban riots of the last two years. They tell us that Negroes have only now begun to find their true manhood in violence that the riots prove not only that Negroes hate whites, but that compulsively they must destroy them. This bloodlust interpretation ignores one of the most striking features of the city riots. Violent they certainly were, but the violence to a startling degree was focused against property rather than against people. There were very few cases of injury to persons, and the vast majority of the rioters were not involved at all in attacking people. The much-publicized death toll that marked the riots and the many injuries were overwhelmingly inflicted on the rioters by the military, and all of the other participants had a different target, property. I am aware that there are many who wince at a distinction between property and persons, who hold both sacrosanct. My views are not so rigid. A life is sacred. 
property is intended to serve life. And no matter how much we surround it with rights and respect, it has no personal being. It is part of the earth man walks on. It is not man. The focus on property in the 1967 riots is not accidental. It is saying something. If hostility to whites is ever going to dominate a Negro's attitude and reach murderous proportions, surely it would be during a riot. But this rare opportunity for bloodletting was sublimated into arson or turned into a kind of stormy carnival of free merchandise distribution. Why were they so violent with property then? Because property represents a white power structure which they were attacking and trying to destroy. A curious proof of the symbolic aspect of the looting for some who took part in it is the fact that after the riots, police received hundreds of calls from Negroes trying to return merchandise they had taken. Those people wanted the experience of taking, of redressing the power imbalance that property represents. Possession afterwards was secondary. I'm sorry, that's all the time that we have for tonight. This speech is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Massey Lecture Number 4, recorded November 1967 by the CBC. The full speech can be found at prx.org. The whole series is there as well, actually. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Massey Lecture Series at prx.org. Definitely worth a listen. Well, that's it for the local edition. I've been your host, Jason Dole. We'll be back tomorrow night. Keep listening to Radio Catskill, live streaming at WJFFradio.org. Daily is up next. This is Radio Catskill. Listen local. You're listening to The Local Edition, winner of Excellence in Broadcasting Awards from the New York State Broadcasters Association. Radio Catskill. Listen local.